You don't really need to know, but probably should. I'm Kira Revan, and this, this is the Sunday Seven. In today's episode, something strange is happening at the centre of the Earth. A scientist discover we share a common language with great apes, and there's finally some good news for the bees. But first, it was on this day in 1886, Carl Benz patented the world's first automobile with a burning motor. According to some estimates, between 10 and 12% of all Irish adults are currently being prescribed antidepressants. Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, also known as SSRIs, are among the most widely used antidepressants. However, they come with a common side effect, emotional blunting. Whilst they dull emotional pain, people on SSRIs also report they no longer find things as pleasurable. One study suggested this could be the case for up to 60% of people taking the drug. And now a study from University of Cambridge offers new insights. So I'm Dr. Christelle Langley and I'm a research associate in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Cambridge. Hi Dr. Langley, thanks for joining us. So we're talking about your latest study on antidepressants and emotional blunting. Firstly, could you walk us through that study and how it was carried out? As we know, patients with neuropsychiatric disorders take these drugs for months or often even years. Um, So because of that, understanding the uh, longer term effects is extremely necessary. So to do this, we recruited healthy volunteers who were either given placebo or the SSRI escitalopram uh, for at least 21 days. So we used a number of different tests assessing what we call cold and hot cognition. So cold cognition is rational, non-emotional cognition, and it's things that we use in everyday life, such as attention and memory. Uh, whereas hot cognition is a more social and emotional cognition that we use when interacting with others, for example. So we specifically tested reinforcement learning, which is an important behavioral process that allows us to learn from our environment through either positive and rewarding or even negative feedback. So importantly, these tasks can pertain a certain amount of uncertainty. So for example, in the tasks we used, you're asked to choose between a stimulus A and B. If you chose the correct stimulus, you are rewarded with positive feedback saying that you were correct four out of five times but one out of five times you're misleadingly told that you're incorrect. And previous studies have shown that patients with depression are overly sensitive to this negative feedback and they then respond incorrectly to the task. This kind of emotional blunting is a common side effect for people who use these drugs, although it's been unclear whether it's a symptom of depression itself or the medication. What did the study reveal about this? So our key and novel finding was that escitalopram had specific effects on reinforcement sensitivity on two different tests of reinforcement learning. Uh, So they had lower reinforcement sensitivity in the escitalopram group, and this may may be similar to the blunting effect reported by patients um, during SSRI treatments. So the reason we say this is a specific effect as well is that there were no uh, differences on other, uh, between the two groups on other tests of hot or cold cognition. Um, And this does suggest that escitalopram may be involved in the blunting that is experienced by patients, but it's still important to understand that this is also a symptom of depression and this actually does make it really difficult to fully comprehend how this is happening. Dampening down of the negative emotions and the distress felt by depressed patients may actually be part of the therapeutic process for these drugs. Um, However, as they can't selectively target negative emotions, it seems that unfortunately they may also be taking away some of the enjoyment. Um, This doesn't mean that they're not effective 
and of course not everyone who takes SSRIs experience this blunting, but it does provide a little more understanding as to how these drugs may work and helps us to provide better treatment options. So what do the results of this study mean for the drug? Are they still beneficial or should they be approached with caution? So for many people suffering from depression, SSRIs improve their condition significantly. It gives them a better quality of life and improves their ability to function in everyday life. So they're certainly still beneficial for many people. Um, in fact, actually, a recent uh, large study examined 21 different antidepressants and showed that they were all more effective than placebo. Um, so the findings from our study show that more work is required to fully understand the way in which these drugs work, but it doesn't suggest that they're not still useful or necessary for many people. So interestingly, if we're able to detect depression early, we might be able to treat it effectively with psychological treatments only. Um, and also importantly, there are several evidence-based ways to improve cognition and well-being and mental health that include things like exercise, lifelong learning and social interaction. Um, so using these types of techniques may actually be really helpful to promote a better well-being in everyone and not just people that experience depression. Beneath the crust, below the mantle and underneath the molten core is a solid spinning inner core of our planet. The core spin has been the subject of books, comics and even Hollywood films. The core of the Earth has stopped spinning. The spinning core but this time around, it appears life is imitating art. A new study analysing seismic wave data has concluded that the core's rotation stopped around the year 2009 and then restarted in the opposite direction. This is John Vidale, a seismologist from the University of South California. There's a very strong magnetic field down there. It's pressure and gravity and the magnetic field that all have to balance. According to the researchers, the core is changing directions in a pattern. It's rotating in one direction and then the other, like a swing, every few decades. A complete cycle of this swing takes about 70 years. The last rotation change before 2009 would have occurred in the early 1970s and the next one will take place in the mid-2040s. Due to its accessibility, there's still much debate about the nature of the Earth's core. These mineral physics people need to explore what happens at a boundary between liquid iron and, and solid iron. Um, so a whole range of possibilities of things that might be happening. It'll take time and new modelling to better understand what's happening without its internal convection. Mars lost its magnetic field, its heat and went cold. That's not happening here, but if we can predict the subtle shifts below, we could ultimately prepare for the effects up above. Still to come on the Sunday 7, our common language with great apes and something big is happening in Antarctica. The chimpanzee and bonobo are humans' closest living relatives. They share about 99% of our DNA and now new research has revealed we may even share a common language. That's the conclusion of a video-based study in which volunteers translated ape gestures. It was carried out by researchers at St. Andrews University and suggests the last common ancestor we shared with chimps used similar gestures and that these may have been a starting point for our language. There were now dozens of known gestures in the great ape lexicon, each with a particular meaning. By showing video 
videos of these gestures to volunteers, scientists discovered that more than half the time, people are able to understand the message that wild chimp or bonobo are trying to convey with a signal or movement. This is Kirsty Graham, the lead researcher for the study, speaking with the BBC. We can be fairly confident that this would have been a communicate. This is a communication system shared by all great ape species, including humans, and that our la- last common ancestors with bonobos and chimpanzees probably used quite similar gestures. And that these gestures may have then gone on to scaffold the evolution of human gesture and human language as we know it now. Whilst this research tells us a little something about the origins of human gestures, it's important to note that only about 50% of the volunteers correctly guessed the ape gestures, which also means around half didn't. And I think what's important here is that we know that context is really important for our own communication. It's also really important for other great apes. So bonobos, some of their gestures have multiple meanings. So an arm raised gesture might mean climb on my back, it might mean groom me, um, it might mean uh, move closer. So there's gestures that have many meanings, but they mean specific things in specific contexts. So one of our follow-up questions is whether given more context, knowing what happens before, if people become better at interpreting these gestures. And it's not just great apes, other animals also make use of gestures to community with one another. Um, There's more and more evidence that it's common across other primates. So there's some nice research on baboons um, and on bonnet macaques and other macaque species showing sets of around 30 to 40 gestures, um, about half of what we found in great apes, but maybe they'll find more. There's also um, some evidence of gesture in birds. Um, So in corvids and in babblers that they do some displays um, and some gestures actually with their um, wings and beaks. Um, So I think it it might be quite widespread that across the animal kingdom there is some ability to use these body actions as ways of communicating. But nothing quite as rich as what we see in other great apes so far. You might be sitting listening to this thinking, sure, my dog gestures to me and you wouldn't be wrong. It does tell us something probably about how dogs and cats were domesticated because they've gone through um, a selection process where we've chosen traits. We've chosen to continue breeding dogs that are attentive to our commands, to our gestures. So dogs, for instance, quite good at following pointing and understanding pointing and using some pointing themselves, um, where that's really uncommon across other species. So studying dogs um, and maybe other domesticated species can also inform us on human gesture. And the study is not only for the benefit of understanding how our own communication developed, Dr. Graham says it can inform animal welfare too. All great ape species are endangered. There's a lot of them in captivity and captive breeding programs can be really important conservation tools. Um, but equipping people with uh, more knowledge about uh, recognising what the chimps and other great apes are communicating about could have important welfare uh, implications for the apes as well. An iceberg the size of Greater London has broken off Antarctica. 
The vast block of ice measures an enormous 1,150 square kilometres and broke away from the 150 metre thick Brunt ice shelf. As terrifying as it sounds, scientists were expecting this. Dominic Hodgson is a glaciologist with the British Antarctic Survey and described what happened to Euronews. So overnight development of, of, of large cracks across the ice shelf, uh, which made us aware that it was vulnerable to, to a collapse event uh, and a carving event. And so we increased the intensity of our monitoring of that ice shelf. It's now one of the most intensely monitored ice shelves uh, in Antarctica. Antarctica is threatened by global warming, but glaciologists say that the phenomenon is a natural event that they were ready for. The reason it's important, it's a very large carving event for Antarctica. Um, we do see these sort of carving events periodically. Um, and also the ice shelf, the, our, our station was situated on the piece of ice shelf that has broken away. Um, so had we not moved it several years ago, um, we would have been in a situation now where we have a, a, a station floating off. So to come on the Sunday 7, a new study on altruism in kids, and we hear from the man who first discovered microplastics. Right after this. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You're listening to the Sunday 7. Follow us for your weekday news espresso or maybe try our UK edition. It's all in the usual places. The human urge to lend a hand extends to animals from the earliest years of life. This is according to researchers who observed toddlers interacting with friendly dogs. Children as young as two years old went out of their way to help dogs get toys and tasty treats that were placed beyond their reach, despite never having met the animals before. The US study has found that altruism towards other species may have helped humans thrive, and they've now observed this in children. To find out more, we sit down with one of the paper's researchers. I'm Margaret Alkelbarger. I'm an assistant professor of marketing at Stony Brook University in New York. I primarily study uh, child consumer behavior, especially as it relates to financial decision making and prosociality. Hi, Margaret. Thanks for joining us. So today we're talking about altruism towards animals and how this has helped us thrive as humans. You and your colleagues devised a study to test this. What did that study look like? To carry out the study, we recruited children two to three years of age and three pet dogs, my own included. 
And, uh, and then in this quasi-naturalistic uh, study, we assessed whether children would spontaneously help our pet dogs acquire out-of-reach toys and treats. And each child worked with only one dog. So our pet dogs were behind this porous enclosure, which allowed children to interact with the dogs on their own terms. And to test whether children would spontaneously help dogs as they do other humans, an experimenter would, for example, surreptitiously drop a treat from her pocket while leaving the room. The dog would then beg or not for the treat by pawing at the enclosure or whimpering. Children would then help the dog by picking up, again, or not, the treat or toy and dropping it in the enclosure so the dog could consume it or, or play with it. Um, and we coded whether dogs indicated wanting the out of reach object and whether children help dogs acquire those out of reach objects. What were your key findings and how did the results differ with kids who have pets at home? So overall, children were more likely to help the dogs acquire out-of-reach objects when the dog showed interest in them. So more specifically, children helped our dogs acquire out-of-reach objects 50% of the time when the dog showed interest in them, but only about 25% of the time when our dog showed no interest in them. And it was also the case that children who had pet dogs at home were even more likely to attend to dogs' desires to obtain these out-of-reach objects, both when the dogs indicated interest in not. However, critically, both children with and without pet dogs at home gave discriminately, meaning they were more likely to help the dogs acquire these out-of-reach objects when the dogs expressed interest in them. What do the results of the study tell us about ourselves as humans? Does it suggest that altruism in general could be the key to human survival? So animal domestication has been advantageous to human survival and indeed uh, dogs are our earliest known domesticates. Now, why we came to domesticate animals is a mystery. However, our finding that children are spontaneously pro-social toward unfamiliar pet dogs, dogs they'll never see again, provides one piece of evidence that might help us understand this mystery. And more generally, pro-sociality is key for many reasons, from you know forging social connections to maintaining a good reputation within a group. So being pro-social, being altruistic, is important for our survival. Every year, about 10 million tonnes of plastic gets into our oceans. The plastic problem is well known now, but it wasn't always that way. In 1971, marine biologist Edward Carpenter made a shocking discovery. Edward was studying algae when he found small bits of plastics floating around thousands of miles off the east coast of America in the Atlantic Ocean. Here he is speaking about the experience with the BBC. Every time I towed my net on the surface of the ocean, I got plastic. So this really surprised me because we were so far from land. And I began to catalog uh, the weight of the plastic and the number of particles. And at that time, it was about 3,500 particles of plastic per square kilometer. There were different types of plastic, little jagged pieces, maybe uh, five, six millimeters in diameter. And there were other uh, round plastic uh, particles that were are called uh, by the plastics industry, nurdles. And these are the raw plastic material that is sold by a plastic manufacturer to a fabricator to make into 
uh, a toy or some other plastic particle. Edward was shocked to see plastic so far out at sea and knew it needed to be documented. But the scientific community didn't welcome his discovery. Edward's boss even asked his to stop measuring plastic pollution. But Edward was determined, so he continued his research in secret. When I put that paper together and sent it off to the journal Science, uh, the senior scientists there at the Oceanographic did not like that paper. They said that I should really stick to biology. Within a few months of that paper being published, I then uh, ran into plastics again. I saw what I thought was a little fish egg under the microscope, so I squeezed it with some forceps and it just popped right out. And I said, well, that's not a fish egg, that's a, a little sphere of plastic. And it took years for the scientific community to take note. At the Ocean Sciences meeting in 2010 in Portland, Oregon, when they had the session on plastics and they highlighted first two papers that I wrote in uh, 1972, I said, finally, yes, people are beginning to take this seriously. And there has been, uh, again, about an exponential increase in the number of papers on plastic pollution. And today we, we see plastic particles in the Arctic sea ice at the top of Mount Everest in the Alps, everywhere that a scientist looks. There is plastic. One. Our pollinators are in peril. Currently, one in ten bee and butterfly species and one in three hoverfly species is threatened with extinction, and the EU wants to change that. The EU wants to reverse the decline of insects vital for crop production using buzz lines, a blueprint for a network of ecological corridors for pollinators where they could move across Europe and find food and shelter. It's part of a seven-year plan laid out to increase insect monitoring across the 27 member states. The plans were laid out this week by Virginius Sikivikius, the EU's Environment Commissioner. Pollinators need stronger protection. The extinction of pollinators would cause ecosystems to fall apart. It would quite literally be the stuff of nightmares. And we have to avoid that scenario and the new deal for pollinators adopted today aims at reversing their decline by the year 2030. The seven-year plan will also increase monitoring of the insects across the 27 member states, aiming to hold population decline in pollinators that are crucial to the majority of crops and wildflowers. The first action area is better conservation of species and habitats. We will do that specifically with conservation plans for species under threat. We identify pollinators that are typical of habitats protected under the Habitats Directive and actions to step up that protection. This has been the Sunday 7. However you're listening, do us a favour and hit the follow button. We'll be back tomorrow at 7am with a regular Smart 7 Ireland edition. Have a great rest of the weekend. Hi, this is Kira from the Smart 7 Ireland edition. Just to let you know, we're pausing this podcast from Friday the 25th of August, but you can still get up to speed in just seven minutes if you search the Smart 7 and catch up with our UK edition. Thanks for listening.